0: My name is Anastasia Lapatina, and you're listening to This Week in Ukraine, a new video podcast from the Kyiv Independent. Every week, I will sit down with one of my newsroom colleagues to dive into Ukraine's most pressing issues. And today, we're discussing Ukraine's defense of Bakhmut, an embattled city in Donetsk Oblast that has seen some of the fiercest fighting of Russia's war. I'm joined by our reporter, Francis Farrell traveled to the front line in the east of Ukraine multiple times, reporting from Avdivka, Svetahirsk, and other locations, including Bakhmut. Francis, welcome to the show.
1: Great to be here.
0: So, Francis, both of us have been to Bakhmut at different points in time. I went there before the full-scale invasion, and you were there, I think, just over two months ago, when the situation was already pretty extreme. But I want you to take us there now, What does Bakhmut look and sound like, and how does it feel to be there?
1: Yeah, so when I was there, it was in the middle of January, and that was when kind of when Russia was starting to assault the outskirts of the city on the east side of the Bakhmutka River, and you could hear that all the time. um, Just uh, one or two kilometers away, you could hear the rifle fire, you could hear the submachine gun fire from this really close quarters combat. And we also got a chance to actually see what it looked like um, with a a really high-end Ukrainian drone unit, uh, basically watching the battle, directing artillery. And um, yeah, it was was intense. And while you're in the city, you have this background noise of, it's just constant of all different kinds of artillery, incoming, outgoing, rocket launchers, mortars, howitzers. So it it was intense, but it was manageable. You know, you need to stay on your toes and, and you can't be too relaxed or too panicked just alert. But yeah, it's interesting to compare it to when I was in Ivdivka just a week ago, actually, because there, that was where that city is also now kind of close to surrounded on three sides by, by the Russians and, and the kind of artillery fire that is coming in because of that was actually a lot more tense, intense than, than in Bakhmut in January.
0: A few days ago on March 26th, The Ukrainian military reported that Ukraine's armed forces managed to, quote, stabilize the situation in Bakhmut. They said that the fighting continues, but the intensity decreased. Based on your reporting, would you agree with that assessment? Would you describe the situation there right now as stable?
1: Yeah, so just to give a bit of context, um, mm-hmm. the, the battle for Bakhmut has been going on for now seven, eight months. And it started way back in August when the Russians kind of approached the outskirts of, of the city, but the fighting was still quite low intensity. And then around November, when Ukraine liberated Kherson, Russia really started intensifying their assault. But when I was there in January, it was still just on the outskirts of the city. But since then, uh, Russia has taken a lot of, a lot of land. North of Bakhmut, they took Solidar. They've been pushing into that countryside and the same on the south.
0: They're trying to encircle the city, right?
1: Yeah, so that, that is, of course, their aim. That's, that's how uh, they got Ukraine to withdraw from Severodonetsk and the mm-hmm. before. So right. basically, yeah. instead of really having this costly urban warfare, they cut off the roads that are going into the city. And now with those roads, the issue is that they're very, very dangerous. The last remaining road is under basically fire control from Russian tanks, from Russian anti-tank uh, guided missiles. Um, I've seen videos from the road going in and out. They're very different from, from when I was on those roads in January. Um, the bridges are blown up. They're using these temporary bridges. They have to go really, really fast, not to be shot at like over hundred Ks an hour across this, this kind of crazy ruined road. And there are lots of ruined vehicles on the side. So we know that it is being, being shot pretty heavily. When they, when they use the word stabilization, it's possible that they're referring to the kind of intensity of the Russian attacks slowing down, which is, which is completely possible because, because they've been taking huge casualties and it's possible they're not able to finish that encirclement. It's possible that they're not able to push very far into the, into the city itself. But at the same time, it's hard to call the situation stable when there really is just these one or two roads left, and, and the city can be fired upon from so many different sides. And Ukraine can just continue to take such huge losses just from artillery alone.
0: For weeks, everyone, including ourselves in the newsroom too, um, have been speculating that Bakhmut is about to fall. And everyone seems to be expecting this. So, how come it hasn't happened yet?
1: The, the result of a, of a battle like Bakhmut is very far from a foregone conclusion. It depends on decisions made by both sides. And in this case, Ukraine has been very clear about the fact that they've made this decision. Ukraine has made this decision to hold Bakhmut and they've allocated the extra forces, perhaps the extra ammunition that they need to do so. But the cost of that uh, in terms of casualties, in terms of ammunition is, is entirely a different matter.
0: So then why exactly did the government make this decision? I mean, I've I've seen reports that allegedly the military and the Ukrainian government have had disagreements over this strategy in Bakhmut. What are the different sides of this debate?
1: Yeah, so there was a period about a month ago where there were lots of rumors um, stoked by local media, by international media about these disagreements between Ukraine's political and military leadership about whether or not to stay. Uh, Since then, they've made very clear that there is consensus, there is agreement. Um, and they've shown a more unified front, and so yeah, of course, there are arguments saying that they should have left a long time ago. Uh, I spoke to soldiers there, you know people on the ground who said, we should have left weeks ago uh, where they're to- well they're talking about the the losses they're they're suffering and the lack of support that they're receiving, they don't have you know when you have when you are surrounded on kind of three sides, practically the the equation of of the extent to which you're able to um, deliver losses to the enemy and the losses that you're taking yourself is automatically going to be less, less favorable. And I, I spoke to a soldier from one of the more elite brigades, assault brigades, who who was saying that there was one brigade holding one part of the front line where they kind of just collapsed and they, lots of them ran away. And then this, their brigade was sent in to, to hold that line and take those back those positions and they did. And I've then, heard
0: those stories too.
1: And then they were replaced. Mm-hmm. And then the brigade that replaced them again, a third did brigade, the they did the same thing. Um, so it, it speaks to, to high losses and, and just a very tough situation in, in the Ukrainian army. Um, so there's that argument. And some people also say that the positions behind Bakhmut around Yar, are potentially um, more defendable. And you won't have those high losses. You won't lose some of Ukraine's most experienced uh, hardened brigades, um, in a fight that's just no longer favorable, uh, while what's Russia losing, but a lot of prisoners, a lot of troops that are disposable for them. Um,
0: And so why is withdrawing to a place like Yar, for example, which is very close to Bakhmut? I've been there, why would that be more favorable to us?
1: Well, in, in Ukrainian and, and Russian military language, you always have this term, like more suitable frontiers, basically, mm-hmm. like we needed to withdraw to go back to more suitable frontiers. So uh, a line that's going to be straighter, that's not going to be a bulge that's mm, surrounded on on three sides where they'll be able to fight without being fired upon basically from behind them. That's, that's the logic. But, um, um, and yeah, on top of that, there is, Also, the threat, even though it looks like Russia's attacks might have slowed down a little bit, people use the word culmination, there's still that threat that they could cut off those roads. And that would be truly, truly tragic. That would be a situation of encirclement. It would be like another Mariupol, another Azovstal. Um, About a month ago, there was one Ukrainian soldier who wrote a viral tweet saying that if we lose these roads, you know, the fortress of Bakhmut is going to turn into the mass grave of Bakhmut, which is something just really horrible to even imagine. So, so there are good reasons there.
0: So then considering all of that, what are the arguments for staying in Bakhmut and defending it?
1: Yeah, the, the Ukraine's military leadership uh, has made it pretty clear that at the moment, the attrition that the Russians are suffering in their attack on Bakhmut is what makes it worth it. Um, So, and there was this argument before in the last summer where Russia lost so many troops attacking Severodonetsk and Lysychansk that they were left weak for Ukraine's offensive in Kharkiv later. So there's a similar logic and here we're actually talking about some of these uh the most experienced units potentially from the Wagner private military company um, which have been the most successful since summer for Russia in, in attacking and taking new territory. So there is There is logic there. Um, The other interesting factor is that a lot of people in the past month, when there was this debate about whether we should stay in Bakhmut or not, they were saying they were criticizing the decision and they were saying that it seems to be a political decision because of Bakhmut's uh, symbolic importance. But just today, actually, we had a really extraordinary interview uh, in the Associated Press uh, in a train with Zelensky where he was really open about the fact that Bakhmut does carry huge political significance. He mentioned everyone. He said that it would it would make Putin see blood and go forward. It would give him a victory to sell to his people. It would give him a victory to sell to Iran, to China, um, to to the kind European of European Union. Yeah, intimidate the West as well. And so he he was very clear about this actually. And the most extraordinary thing is that he even acknowledged that. And and he might not even be right here, um, but he acknowledged the the morale effect that, would it, that it would have for Ukraine as well. Interesting. That losing this city, which has been the focal point of the most intense battles in the whole war. And I can say that in every Ukrainian city, you know, people know guys who were sent out to Bakhmut and, and potentially killed or wounded there. And so he was open and said like, this, this will have an effect on, on, on society and our Ukrainian society, they'll be tired. And he even said, they'll push me to compromise with Russia, which is something that hasn't come into the conversation at all, at all. Before. That's a bit exactly. astonishing. I mean, I think yeah. the
0: polls, however trustworthy they are considering the occupied territories, but. I think something like over eighty-five or over ninety percent of the Ukrainian people are completely against conceding territory and compromising with Russia.
1: Yeah. So I mean so
0: that's a big that's a that's a big claim. It's
1: yeah, I I am not even sure if he's right. I mean, in, in my discussions like with people, I don't I don't know if Bakhmut really changes changes the game, but it is it is a hard loss to take potentially. Um and yeah, and so it's it's worth remembering that the political motivations here they do actually count even for the military picture it is worth also remembering that ultimately we as journalists or even professional military analysts or even soldiers on the front line in their own unit no one has the full picture and no I, one can the fog of war yeah no one can pretend to to understand all the factors because there are so many factors that go into decisions like this and the overall military picture, you know, rightly so, is something that only Ukraine's top military leadership have. And uh, yeah, obviously they shouldn't be trusted blindly, but but they have a lot more information than, than any of us do.
0: And they've been also very clear about asserting that. Um, they've been very clear with trying to kind of tone down on the criticism sometimes, which has sparked some scandalous moments in our civil society and the journalism sphere. But yeah, uh, the military has been very clear on the fact that they know what's best here because they have the intel. So, yeah.
1: It's, you know, it's a delicate dance. It I is think, a
0: very delicate dance.
1: Because yes. you, you understand their motivations as well, you know, uh, for them, the information, information wars is part of this, uh, struggle and they, want to have some control and they understand that the media is, is more or less on their side, but, but sometimes they might have that assessment that, that the way things are being portrayed is not, not Not beneficial. beneficial. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So is the government's plan paying off? I mean, do we know, for example, how many Russians have been killed in the battle of Bakhmut? Do we know if, if the casualties really are so high that it's worth it, it's worth us being there?
1: Yeah, I mean, to start with, you just look at the 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 figures that the general staff are publishing Mm -hmm. every day about Russian Russian personnel losses. It took from the beginning of the full scale invasion, it took until December, so almost ten months, for that number to reach a hundred thousand, and now in March it's already one hundred and seventy something thousand. It's huge. So you just look. I mean, I remember. I mean, I guess we all check those numbers every day, right? With our morning coffee. Oh, today's yeah. 300. Today's 400. And yeah. in the last month, it's like, wow, today's 1000. Today's, uh, and, and you we think actually,
0: that's attributed to Bakhmut.
1: We know that. We know that because we, the spokesperson, um, from that part of the military that's responsible for that sector of the front, he speaks almost every day to Ukrainian media. Uh, mm-hmm. t- he telling, telling me, telling other people about the losses they're taking. And it's interesting because there he distinguishes between killed and wounded, which the general staff figures don't. And in the last few days, I mean, it goes up and down depending on what kind of activity there's been on the front. But uh, in, in the last few weeks, it's quite common that, you, that he says, yeah, there's been about 250 killed and about 400 wounded just in that one day, in 24 hours, just around Bakhmut. So we know for a fact that the majority of these overall Russian losses figures are coming from around that area. And almost every day it's in the hundreds of killed, plus hundreds of wounded, which is just a, a testament to, to what it looks like on the ground.
0: If Bakhmut did fall, which potentially could happen, what might be the consequences of that?
1: Well, I mean, you can listen to Zelensky first about the overall <laughs> political course. consequences. So he's worried about it. He's worried about the, the political significance, what that could do for, for Ukraine's morale. And what that could do for, for Russia's allies and Ukraine's allies. Um, but then on top of that, you actually have the military situation. And on one hand, it's possible that those lines of defense around Chasivyar are better. Mm-hmm. But then north of Chasivyar, you know, further west from Solidar, you have this huge area of open terrain where, where Russia has consistently found it easier to attack. They've, they've always pushed around the cities and, mm-hmm. and gone around them. And if they could keep that up, hopefully that, you know, they've spent so much on, on the battle for Bakhmut that they won't have that momentum. They won't have the forces available for that. But, you know, in theory, they could push that bulge further and further towards Slavyansk and Kramatorsk, which would represent, it would, yeah, it would represent a huge kind of... Shift in, in momentum in this war when just a few months ago we were always talking about Ukrainian counteroffensives and and when the next one would be and suddenly Russia's in artillery range of of Kramatorsk it would it would be it would be tough but again nothing is predetermined here.
0: Is there anything special about the defense of Bakhmut specifically, like anything that stands out to you compared to other important battles like your son or the Kharkiv counteroffensive?
1: Yeah, I mean with. With Russia's attack on, on Bakhmut, the way it looks on the ground, the tactical picture, the biggest thing I would definitely say is, is this Wagner factor, this crazy death cults, um, private military company that is, we know very well that they've got tens of thousands of people from Russia's prison system where they're given an option to, to fight for six months and earn their freedom, even if they were rapists or murderers. so long as they fight for six months in, in Wagner, in, in Ukraine. And so we know, I mean.
0: And why does that matter?
1: Because of the way they fight, because I mean, I heard soldiers say they call them like single use soldiers, like disposable soldiers. So they have some more experienced and better equipped, uh, forces as well.
0: I mean, I guess those are the ones who have been to like Africa.
1: Yeah. I mean, that was the old, yeah. Yeah. Fighting in Syria, in Africa, all over the place. And so what they do, they use those together. Um, Often they send the prisoners in first and then they, then they come in with the the more experienced um, soldiers behind. And if that's backed by a lot of artillery um, where Ukraine struggles to have the same artillery to respond, It can be, I mean, it's, it's brutal and they take huge losses, but, but in that sense, the Wagner forces and and Russia, they're kind of playing to their strength because they know they don't care about the lives of these people and they have a lot of them that they can expend. And what soldiers have also said is that compared to the ordinary mobilized troops, these guys, they don't fear death. They don't care anymore. Lots of people have said that they thought they were drugged up on amphetamines or something. They could be shot and they could keep going.
0: And then there is also this very public now conflict between the founder of Wagner, Prigozhin, and Shoigu, the Russia's defense minister. Right?
1: Yeah, it's it's one of the most interesting episodes for those like people watching the Russian side of the conflict because. People, there's this misconception about Prigozhin. People call him Putin's chef and Mm -hmm. they think that he's very close to Putin. But uh, what this thing has shown, he's very publicly complaining about not having enough artillery ammunition for his Wagner troops. And if he was Putin's best friend, that would not be a problem, right? right? So he needs to get that ammunition from the Russian Ministry of Defense, from the Russian Army, the same Russian Ministry of Defense who he constantly criticizes for being useless and corrupt and unable to, uh, yeah, unable to, to wage war effectively in Ukraine.
0: That's pretty novel for the Russian society, isn't it?
1: So yeah, absolutely. And so you see this, you're kind of eating your popcorn and watching, and watching this drama. And thankfully it's possible that it has a real effect on, on Russia's ability to attack Bakhmut because if, if, the Russian Ministry of Defense, the Defense Minister Shoigu, is also keen to slowly bleed Wagner in a way, the the same way the Ukrainians want to bleed Wagner out. So Wagner under Prigozhin is really taking a leading role in in this Russian assault on Bakhmut. So they were the ones who mostly took solidar. They are the ones who are pushing into the outskirts of the city now. And and Prigozhin really wants to do well. Bakhmut has kind of become his personal prize at that point, that uh, raises his political standing, that gives him more resources and, and more kind of clout in front of Putin to say that, look, I'm the guy who you need to come to if you want victory. Uh, whereas uh, the Russian defense ministry and the defense minister Shoigu is, has, is a quite open enemy of Prigozhin at this point, who has really criticized them a lot. So in a way they maybe want to see him fail, or at least even if he doesn't fail in Bakhmut, they want to see him bleed out and become weaker in comparison to the Russian, the regular Russian army.
0: So Shoigu and Prigozhin are engaging in this kind of internal struggle for power, maybe?
1: Yeah, I mean, we'll see. I guess struggle for favor, struggle for resources, um, struggle for rent and, and prestige when it comes to those who Putin goes to, to persecute his war.
0: And so how does Ukraine's defense of Bakhmut fit into Kind of the entire picture, Ukraine's overall plans for the campaign going forward.
1: Yeah, so it's it's a really kind of tragic thing when, when you come and you, you hear these Ukrainian soldiers talking about not having enough support, talking about uh, other brigades fleeing their positions, talking about almost newly mobilized Ukrainian soldiers um, being sent straight into the fight. And so you, you get this picture of, of them not having enough resources, not and really suffering worse losses than they should just trying to hold this city. But then you also know it's a very open secret that Ukraine is preparing for this huge spring summer counteroffensive. They're getting the Western tanks, the other armored vehicles, they're forming new brigades, so they are saving up. They're saving up ammunition and you mm-hmm. can see on the ground with your own eyes, like how other brigades are suffering, are almost being sacrificed because of that goal. And it's, it's really tough because Ukraine, they've always said, right, that the lives of their guys, the lives of their soldiers are the most important thing. It's a priority when planning any operation. And
0: comparably to Russia that certainly has been proven. It's true. Yeah,
1: in contrast to, to Russia's kind of cannon fodder human wave tactics, right? But then you also know it's just a fact that for Ukraine's future, for the future of the war, kind of for Ukraine's viability as a state, this success of this counteroffensive in, in spring or summer that we're all waiting for is the most important thing. It's not whether we hold Bakhmut or not. And, and you can see that they need to save up, they need to conserve their strength. And it's, it's tough, yeah.
0: It looks like this terrible situation in Bakhmut is so terrible almost by design then, because we're losing our best men, but it seems to serve our military purposes. I guess the question of whether it is all ultimately worth it remains an open question. Now we will be answering a few questions that were sent to us by our supporters on Patreon. We really do value our community engagement and we will try to incorporate as many questions as we can in every episode that we do. So please, if you haven't subscribed to the Kyiv Independent on Patreon, do so. It directly funds the work of our newsroom and gives you the chance to ask us questions and take part in exclusive events and more.
1: It's really simple. Just go to patreon.com slash Kiev Independent.
0: Now let's dive into the questions. So one of our Patreon subscribers asked our opinion on the story of a commander in the Ukrainian military who was demoted for speaking to the Washington Post about the lack of skilled troops on the ground near Bakhmut, a lack of ammunition, you know, about the fact that there was a lot of pessimism within the Ukrainian military and essentially he got punished for it. So, Francis, I know this is a hot topic in the journalism community in Ukraine. What do you think?
1: Yeah, I mean it it ties into a lot of what we've talked about already, about about the military's attempt to have a bit of control on the narrative about um optimism, pessimism. And the fact is we know that they're making these sacrifices at the moment. We know that some of these brigades are really hurting because of Ukraine's overall strategy to hold Bakhmut and to also save up for for counteroffensives. And yeah, it's 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 really tricky. It's worth remembering that again, it's not the whole picture. It's just part of the picture from one experienced That's guy. That's
0: very important. Yeah.
1: So, um
0: I think it's worth pointing out that people in general should be careful with making broad broad judgments about our military as re- as a result of this. It's definitely problematic and uh you know, I want our listeners to be sure that we are all very aware that this is problematic and the civil society And the journalists are all talking about this, you know, issue of censorship perhaps from the side of the military, but it goes hand in hand with the fact that I think we have to give some understanding to the military, not on this particular issue, of course, he shouldn't have been demoted, but in general on issues of, um, you know, controlling what can and cannot be said. I think it's true that we do not have the full picture and it's this extremely delicate kind of balance that we're we're playing into here between what is, is hurting our military interests and what is ultimately the truth that has to be heard. So, um, yeah. Another question that we got from a supporter of ours is, are the Wagner bandits really leaving Bakhmut, or was that disinformation?
1: Um, the, the short answer is no. Uh, we saw some rumors about them wanting to leave, Prigozhin wanting to focus back on his operations uh, elsewhere around the world, in Africa and the Middle East. In reality, of course, uh, Wagner is quite integrated into the whole uh, Russian military plan. And there's been a lot of evidence recently that even though, yeah, they've taken big losses, um, but they're not leaving. They're just actually being reinforced by airborne units. I heard reports from soldiers that now there were some Chechen Kadyrovite units also supporting Wagner in that area. So yeah, it does show that they can actually work together sometimes as strange as that might be. Um, and yeah, they haven't, they haven't gone anywhere.
0: Unfortunately. Yeah. The third question that we got is what is the best way to counter the type of massive artillery plus the human wave attacks that we've seen in Bahmut and Solidar from the Russian side? Aside from more ammunition, would Ukraine need to mobilize more people?
1: Well, it's a really tough question because uh, it goes back to what we were saying earlier that Russia is playing to its strength, actually. It's not limited. The incompetence of the Russian military is not limitless, and it knows the tactics that it's using now um, are the most effective against what Ukraine can defend with. Um, About mobilization, it's not like in Russia where you have these very politically controversial waves of mobilization. And then it's a question, are they doing it in secret or not in between? No, Ukraine is, has martial law and Ukraine has full mobilization and it's going constantly, uh, and some people are not happy about it, but it's, it's but happening. That's the reality. Yeah. Um, and otherwise what soldiers tell me is they, they just need more support. Um, and of course the biggest thing is ammunition. The biggest thing is, is for them to be able to actually hit the Russians that they can see coming.
0: You mean artillery ammunition specifically? Artillery
1: ammunition, even mortar ammunition. In one brigade, I heard that in their battalion, they had 12 mortars, but they only had five shells to shoot with those that's 12 mortars ideal. in one day. Um, so, so that's what they need more. And, and the other thing they said, they need more eyes in the sky. They need more drones. They need better drones. Uh, they need drones with thermal vision. It's a huge, it makes a huge difference for for how you see the battlefield, How how a firefight can play out if, if you've got those eyes in the sky.
0: Well, Francis, thank you very much for joining us. This was very interesting.
1: Thank you. I know the topic was quite heavy, but it was a pleasure.
0: Also, this week, Avdivka, a frontland city in Donetsk Oblast, has been closed for both volunteers and journalists due to the intensity of Russian attacks. City officials reported that seven children still remain in Avdiivka, along with 2,000 other civilians, without heat, water, or any other utilities. Ukraine also finally received 18 much-awaited Leopard 2 tanks from Germany, three Leopard 2 tanks from Portugal, and some Challenger tanks from Britain. And the international community reacted to Russia's plans of deploying tactical nuclear weapons to Belarus. The European Union said that Russia would face consequences if it proceeds with the plan, while China said that, quote, strategic risks should be reduced. You can find our show on YouTube and all audio platforms every Friday morning. If you liked this episode, subscribe to us and like our content wherever you're listening to this podcast. Please support The Cueve Independent on Patreon at patreon.com slash and follow us on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. We'll be back next week.